You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there, back here in the studio of Gangland Wire, here in the studio and on a Zoom call with my new friend Gavin Smith from up in Milwaukee. First thing, a little commercial. Don't forget to hit me up on Venmo at Gangland Wire. Support the podcast once in a while. Buy me a uh, Starbucks coffee. Buy me one of those expensive coffees. <laughs> Some people even buy me a shot and a beer every once in a while, or just buy me a diner coffee. For 10 cents, you used to be able to get one of those, but uh, <laughs> you can't get one of those for 10 cents anymore. You can also hit the donate button on the uh, webpage if you want to, Gangland Wire, and I appreciate it. And Gavin, welcome. Glad to be here. It's really an honor. I think you might be the original <laughs> Gangland podcast. Gavin, I think you're right. I look back and I see all these guys that got their mob podcast, but I look back and they weren't anywhere. And when I started, there was one other guy that I could find because I looked around for him. There was a guy up in New York that had one and he kind of tried to act like he was a gangster too. And I don't know if it lasted or not. It was to me, it kind of turned me off trying to listen to it, but uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what denigrated competition. I don't need to do that. But shortly after I started that one with Gimlet, which is a big time podcasting company started called Mafia. And they've been going ever since. They're not as long as I have, but and they even had me on their <laughs> show <laughs> a couple of times. So anyhow, welcome, and you are the quintessential expert on the Milwaukee mob, which uh, I've been wanting to do this for quite a while. I just get sidetracked and distracted with all the different mob stories and throughout the United States. Kansas City has this connection with the Milwaukee mob with Frank Ballesteri or Fancy Pants. Uh, I've even got a transcript from the Las Vegas entrepreneur that they had co-opted that owned the uh, stardust, Alan Glick, and he claims that Nick Savella threatened him once and also told Frank DeLuna to get in a car and drive up and straighten fancy pants out. And I understand (laughs) that it was only, that was a derogatory nickname for him. So I'm really excited to have you on there. Welcome, Gavin. Like I said, it's great to be here. Known about the podcast a long time. Never thought I'd be asked. So So, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get into this mafia thing? You've got more than one book. Tell me a little bit about how you got into this. What's your history? What's your background? Completely unlike probably anybody else. I never had an interest in organized crime. I Nothing of the sort. My background, what I went to school for was philosophy. And part of that is I was already curious since I was a child, but that only made me more curious. (laughs) It's like you just learn to ask questions. And when... I started hearing about the Milwaukee Mafia. And granted, as people on the YouTube can see, I'm a little on the younger side. So it's before my time. But when I heard about it, I was like, I would like to know a lot more about this. And when I started looking, there weren't any books, there weren't any movies. It was really just a big, empty area. And my curiosity won't allow that. So (laughs) I had to start doing it myself, gathering the newspaper articles and the FBI documents and everything else. So over the last however many years, now 10, 15 years, I've become the expert by default. Uh, Not that it was anything I ever intended to do, just because now I'm in a position where I'm the person who has all the material. So. 
Interesting. That's cool. Okay. There's your other, there's other book, Milwaukee yep. Mafia Images of America in paperback. Get both these books on Amazon, of course, folks. Highly recommend you get them. You have any interest at all in the, actually the Midwest mob because of all the three major families, Kansas City, Chicago, and Milwaukee, they were an integral part of that and an integral part of helping to control the Teamsters Union and the Teamsters mm-hmm. Pension Fund. They had their own band in place up there. So let's talk a little bit about, maybe you want to go clear back to the first origins of the Milwaukee Mafia family. Okay. Want to go that like far they back? started back east. I don't really know anything about that before Frank Ballesteri. Let's touch base on that a little bit. Okay. Then we're going way back because as far as I can tell, it's at least as far back as 1903. There might've been a couple guys before that, but it wasn't anything that anybody knew was going on. But yeah, around 1903, a man named Vito Guardalabene came over from Sicily from a small town called Santa Flavia, which is just north of Palermo. And he came over with a handful of his crew and, you know, he brought some of his family members, family with a small F, and just kind of grew from there. So he was the boss for a while. His son was the boss for a while. There were a couple other guys in between. John Aliotto becomes the boss in the 50s. And then Frank Bell's career, who everybody knows, is the son-in-law of John Aliotto. So he took over after that. I mean, so the so long before Frank was the big name that he was, there was mob activity in Milwaukee for 50 plus years. It just it never really gathered the attention from the media the way that Frank did. <laughs> he didn't shy away from the media, which really was probably part of his downfall. Now, I would have to ask now about during Prohibition, they were probably overshadowed by Capone, but they had to be mm-hmm. because of geographically, they were ideally suited to work with smugglers to get beer and, and whiskey in from Canada, particularly whiskey. I think but Capone pretty much made his own beer, I think, in the Canadian Ace Distributing Company. I can't remember the exact name of it, but they had to be really connected to, to Capone and smuggling alcohol in from Canada? Yes and no. So they were definitely the Canadian smuggling part, yes. And Milwaukee sort of has a unique position in prohibition history in that where that's many mafia families sort of by the time they blew up huge. Milwaukee, not as much really? because Milwaukee never really enforced prohibition. <laughs> being, being, being the city with all the breweries and a heavily German population, yeah. it wasn't as hard to get a drink or oh, as God. frowned upon. So they didn't require people to smuggle as much as in maybe other cities. Oh, um, we know. That is so interesting, Gavin, because, I mean, even in modern times, as they legalize marijuana, the price drops. As the supply is increased, the price drops. So there wasn't as much money. So during Prohibition in Chicago, where there was a lot of enforcement activity in Kansas City, you can make a lot more money because you could charge a lot more money and it was much riskier, but you get paid for that risk. That is really interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah. Anybody who was, well, not anybody, but you know, it's the Germans, the Irish, anybody who, you know, not to stereotype, but who has sort of that background. Oh, yeah. They all have family members who know how to make their own yeah. stills. So they didn't have to import all that much. That is interesting. That, that is much more of a cultural thing. Alcohol 
German immigrants and Irish immigrants, the alcohol was much more part of the culture. Whereas mm-hmm. the English, for some reason, and more Puritan influence, I think is where all that came from. And that there was a huge English were running all the reins of government in the 1920s, you know, turn of the century. And, and they really cracked down on alcohol, and prostitution, and all vice activities right after the 1920s. So uh, mm-hmm. that is really interesting. I never thought about that. Well, let, let's yeah. get back to Alioto and Ballesteri. How did Ballesteri, he married his daughter? He did. How did he what? What was his kind of roots? My interest in a lot of our listeners, my listeners, I call wiretappers. Our wiretappers' interest is really in that, around that skimming stuff. And that was where Ballesteri really came into the national media that got national attention because he right. was so involved with that. But where did Ballesteri come from? I mean, what, is he a young thug in the 20s and 30s and moved on up like a lot of them? Yeah, he's sort of a mysterious character to me. He grows his father and his uncle own a hauling business. And they ended up becoming quite rich during World War II because the city of Milwaukee had garbage trucks. But then during World War II, because of gas rationing, they stopped using the trucks and they brought the horse and the wagon back. And they hired the Balestrieri brothers, Frank's father and uncle, to be their trash haulers. So they ended up getting some very lucrative city contracts off of that. And so Frank grew up With money. He was well off. He went to law school. He dropped out of law school because he owned a bar and a hotel. So he decided that wasn't worth even finishing law school when he's already got a bar and a hotel. So why he ever really decided to go into crime or, you know, make a play for boss, I don't know. I mean, it must be something in someone's mentality or something because he could have lived out his life comfortably and never done it. So I don't know. Like, he's not one of these guys who's scrapping on the streets trying to just survive and then make something of themselves. He could have just been laid back and (laughs) confident. I don't know. I'm not really sure what that turning point was for him, unless it was just because of the fact that his father and his uncle were, and then his father-in-law was. And I don't know for a fact, but presumably it was an arranged marriage. I don't know, but I'm under the impression that the two fathers probably sort of push them together. That yeah. seems to be fairly standard. Mm-hmm. Interesting kind of old school, old world there kind of thing. Yeah. That, uh, marriages back then, especially where I even like a small county I was from, the sons and daughters of the large farmers tended to marry each other, which then created a combination of large farms and even larger farms and people that work together. So anyhow, he's coming up through the 30s and there's not much prohibition going on. I assume that they had to get into gambling pretty soon, have any kind mm-hmm. of vice activities. And I know those uh, farmers and uh, Germans and Irish guys that settled this country like to gamble. So I'm sure he got into that. What was his early forays into the gambling business? He definitely did. It's tricky to know some things because... A lot of times we know when people were doing things because it's the crime of the day that the media or the police decided that they were enforcing. I'm sure you understand that very well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's like whatever happened to crack cocaine now that Oxycontin's the drug of the day. Whatever happened to LSD? I even had to ask my granddaughter the other day. I said, well, do kids still take LSD? You never anything about it? Oh, yeah, they still do. So, you know, it's whatever the press pays attention to, the crime of the day. That's a good way to put that. 
Right. So, yeah, in the 1940s, at least in Milwaukee, that's when they decided that, oh, we should probably look into gambling. And, yeah. and they had a big investigation. And what here in Wisconsin, what we call a John Doe investigation, which other states, it's sort of their equivalent of a grand jury. But anyway, he oversaw this thing called the Ogden Social Club, which confuses me because it was actually, they incorporated it. It's a legitimate yeah. thing that they have records for, but it was strictly gambling. It was roulette tables and everything else. But what they would do is they would rotate where it was. It ended up getting busted in about a dozen different places within a few square blocks under the idea that as long as you kept moving it, the fines would never go up because the big fine was being the keeper of the house. Yeah. So if the keeper of the house is different every time, the fines never get that big. Wow. Pretty slick. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, definitely gambling an interest of his early on and pretty much for the rest of his life. What other kind of rackets did he get into in, in the kind of his earlier life? Did he start in with the Teamsters back in the 50s? Mm, probably. Definitely. I mean, he knew the Teamsters very early on. Joe Caminiti, who was a big union guy was like the godfather of one of his sons. So he was definitely close with them early on. So I don't know at what point he started using them for things. I mean, that doesn't really come into attention until the FBI starts looking into it. So I'm not sure exactly when that started. Uh, interesting. But yeah, definitely he was close with the right guys there. One of the, like, the major things that he was known for was being involved in coin-operated machines, vending machines, yeah. and other things. And some of it is just a matter of fact that it's all coin operated. It wasn't, it was cash. So you didn't have to claim it, which is always the big thing with crime is you don't want to have to tell the government how much money you made. Yeah. So when you're dealing in cash, that's a bonus. So there's that. But then he would do strange things. Like that wasn't enough. He would do strange things where he would buy old machines put new siding on the machines and then yeah. sell them back as if they were new machines. <laughs> so it wasn't enough just to have machines in the bars all over town. It was, he would then have to scam the machines themselves. It was very strange, but I, I mean, guess any way to make a dollar, you'll take it. Wow. So no, it was by vending machines, but he had all the cigarette and the candy machines. And, yes. And and when soda machines started coming out, he had all them. Did, did he get into one time? Did he do slot machines? Did they have a slot machine operation going? Usually out of those amusement companies, some part of that will be slot machines, video poker today. Did he get into that too? Yeah. Less so because it's not legal. So it's, it was never a major part. Definitely more so jukeboxes and and cigarette vending machines. And if you have a younger audience, the younger audience may not realize that once upon a time, cigarette machines were everywhere. Yeah. Every gas station, every supper club. I mean, they were everywhere. And jukeboxes too. And, and jukeboxes. People realize there were jukeboxes everywhere. Yeah. But cigarettes like, was, a, was a big thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know about other places, but around here, it was very poorly enforced. If you wanted to send your five-year-old kid to buy you a pack of cigarettes, yeah. you could do it. <laughs> But it's ideal because if, say, somebody hijacks a truck of cigarettes, yeah. now you've got free product, plus you put it in a machine that you own and you mark up the price, and then whatever you make, you don't have to tell the government how much money you took out of the machine. Sometimes I tell people vending machines, and I'm like, that's a really stupid mob scam, but it's really not. It's actually incredibly clever. Yeah. 
And when they weren't doing, running stolen cigarettes from them, they weren't paying the tax on them. There's always a right. huge tax on cigarettes. If you take the tax off of cigarettes, they'd be about a buck a pack or less probably, but there's always been a big tax on them. So I know in Kansas City, that was one of their dodges was to put them out where they were supposed to put a sticker on them to show that they paid the tax and they would either counterfeit stickers or just put them out through the machines or the corner stores without paying the tax on them that they owed the state. Right. Yeah. I mean, it usually wasn't like they were hijacking. They weren't hijacking trucks every other day, but it was fairly common to get trucks brought in from states like Virginia or North Carolina, where the taxes more or less don't exist. And just when you're driving that bulk amount, you can drive cross country and you're saving a significant amount of money just doing it that way. Really, and that almost came up to modern times. Now that there's, I think, cigarette smoking is such at a low level, there's probably not much money to be made on that. That's kind of a, the typical racket. He's just like every other family and crime boss in the United States, practically, I think, especially in the Midwest, uh, mm-hmm. where you, how you make your different income streams, as we call it today, you know, your passive uh, streams of income, get those right, vending right. machines out and have a guy to run the route. And, and he carried a little further. He was kind of an interesting, colorful guy, Frank Ballesteri was, and his father-in-law is the boss of the crime family. They have a real deal mafia family. I assume they were all from Sicily. Well, originally, yes. Originally, yeah. And so they only brought in new Sicilians and he fit right in because his family was from Sicily and probably had making ceremonies in the whole nine yards. I'm seeing that throughout the whole United States as the Mm -hmm. FBI gets these making ceremonies actually recorded. They just released it. They recorded another one not too long ago. And that's about the third one, I believe. And or, or other people who have talked about their making ceremony. I had a guy on the show, Michael D. Leonardo, and he described in detail, and they're all the same, you know, whatever city it's in, they're always mm-hmm. the same. So I, I find that really fascinating. Yeah, I, I agree. I find it strange how uniform everything is nationwide when these are all apparently, you know, individual groups, but they really do seem to all follow the same patterns. Right. And now, Balsteri or Alioto family in Milwaukee, they really didn't like, didn't have a seat on the commission. I don't think there was anybody from Milwaukee at the uh, Appalachian meeting where they busted everybody. I know Nick Savella was there. He was on his way there. They got him at a train station on his way there. Was anybody from Milwaukee there? I don't think there was, but I can't. Remember. My belief is no. I've seen things saying that Frank was registered at a hotel nearby, but I have no idea what the veracity of that claim is because no, nobody from Milwaukee was caught there, which as a researcher is unfortunate because you love to have that connection. But no, I can't place anybody there. They've always been so close to Chicago. The outfit is so powerful because of Al Capone on a national basis that mm-hmm. they've kind of always been overshadowed. And some people would even say they're almost like another crew of the mm-hmm. outfit. I don't know if I would go that far to make that claim. What, what would you yeah, think about I, I, that? I've heard that, but I disagree as well. They had their own family with a boss. Now, he would have been just like Nick Savella in Kansas City. He would have been subservient to whoever the boss was in Chicago. He would not have bucked him. Pretty sure of that. And I know mm-hmm. Nick Savella. Nick Savella even sent a little extra money up to him every once in a while to IUPA during the uh, 70s. And he didn't really have to. It's kind of like he was kicking up a little bit to his big brother, shall we say. But sure. you had your own separate family up there, just like we did down here. How did he get into uh 
Union racketeering, then, do you got any knowledge of the kind of the roots of that? I know in Kansas City, Nick Savella groomed a guy who went up in the union, a guy named Roy Lee Williams, and he groomed him from early on and had control of him by the 60s. He pretty well had control of him by helping him out with heavies to do heavy work that the union wanted to put pressure on a company or to uh, consolidate his position. How did that work in Milwaukee? I think it was was much more natural than that. I don't think it required anybody to be pushed too hard. In Milwaukee, the Teamster official the head of uh, Union 200 and, or Local 200, I should say, was a man named Frank Ranny. And Frank Ranny, he changed the spelling of his name, but he originally was a Sicilian himself. And oh. I'm fairly certain that he was in from day one. Him and him and Bellasturi were friends and Ranny sat on the pension fund board. So I don't think it took a whole lot of work yeah. to get in on that. See, that's interesting. I did not know that. I didn't really look into him big time, but I did, of course, mention him when I was did my film on the uh, skim, Gangland Wire. And there's an FBI agent named Gary Magnuson who was mm-hmm. uh, signed up there. And he told the story about his first connection between Frank Ballesteri and Frank Ranny. Now, he didn't go into the fact that Ranny was a Sicilian and changed his name. So that really, it makes sense now. Yeah. He was, I don't know he, if that's well known, but yeah, his name was actually like uh, Ranny Airy or something I to see. that effect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now it really makes sense to me. But Gary Magnuson said he was following Ballesteri one day and Ballesteri, he just got lucky, he followed him quite a ways and he went out of town and he met with some guy and he got the license, got the tag number off that guy's car and it came back to Frank Rainey and then he looked into him. He probably maybe already knew he was a high level Teamster. So that was kind of the FBI's first connection between Ballesteri and the Teamsters Union uh, during that time. Gary's written a book called Straw Men that talks mm-hmm. a lot. Of, have you read that? Have you seen that book? Yes, yes, absolutely. Tells a lot about his experiences dealing with uh, Ballesteri and the Milwaukee mob. And then he transferred to Las Vegas and then continued working on the skim. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting book. But so Ranny then helped them get the skim going. Tell yeah. us a little bit about Ballesteri and how he ran his more modern family in the Shortcrest Hotel. We've got, I've got some wiretaps of the Shortcrest Hotel. He did a lot, had a lot of meetings down there. There was a restaurant, I believe. Did he have like offices there in the, in the Shortcrest? Yeah. So the Shortcrest was purchased by Frank's son. And I want to say it's 1971. Well, somewhere thereabouts. And there were offices, well, there still are offices on the ground floor of the hotel. And then the restaurant is on the ground floor. And his two sons were attorneys. So they would use the offices on the ground floor. And Frank would kind of make the restaurant, which at that time was called Snugs, would make that his hangout. This, again, this is before my time, but I'm told that apparently he had a nice dark booth in the back corner and he had a, his own telephone line going to the booth and everything of that sort. So pretty neat. But yeah, Frank was interesting in that I don't think that he cared about the institution or the organization as a whole. I think he really wanted everything for himself. You'll notice that he brings in his closest family members, his his brother, his sons, his in-laws, which isn't, you know, out of the ordinary, but it sort of has the long-term effect. It's the family's going to die with him one way or another because he's just not expanding it out. He wants everything for himself. Interesting. 
So those wiretaps in there, actually it was a hidden microphone. They're really low quality, poor, really poor quality, but there's one of them that they almost have to guess at what he's saying, but he's discussing after the skim, and we didn't really go into that yet. Maybe we should mm-hmm. do that just a little bit first, but I, I just have to tell you this, it popped in my head. He's talking about whether Lefty Rosenthal is a snitch or not. They were suspecting that he was a snitch after they served the search warrants after the wiretaps and everything went down on exposing the skim out of Las Vegas that, of course, Balsterian, Milwaukee, and Kansas City, and Cleveland, and Chicago were involved in. So he and one of his sons are discussing Lefty and his son saying, I don't know, I, I don't think he is. And Frank says, I don't know. He said, you know, you squeeze a Jew, you get a snitch. Now, there's <laughs> an all-time classic mafia line there. You squeeze a Jew, you get a snitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit about kind of the Milwaukee end of that skim. What do you know about that? Well, I don't know if I want to talk it up too much because I don't want to give them more credit than is necessary. But yeah. I think Milwaukee is really a very crucial piece of it that is often forgotten or overlooked because they are the family that brought in Alan Glick. And Alan Glick, without Alan Glick, there is no, I mean, there's other skins, other families had other casinos. As far as the Stardust and the other handful of casinos that the Midwest was playing with, Milwaukee's crucial to that. Do you know how Glick, now folks, Alan Glick, if you don't remember, he was referred to as the brain or the genius or Baldy sometimes in the wiretaps. He was a guy that started a company called Argent and Argent bought the Stardust, the Hacienda, the Fremont and the Frontier, I believe that four casinos and Mm -hmm. he needed a big Teamsters loan to get that. And he started reaching around and and he somehow, now there's erroneous information out there, I believe, that he went to law school because he'd gone to law school too with uh, one of the Ballastery boys, but I don't think that's right. Can't remember. Do you remember how he got his first introduction to Frank Ballastery? Sure. So first I'm going to comment on that. I'm glad that you mentioned that that information is erroneous because in Nick Plagey, Hope I'm saying his name right. In in his his book, Casino, yeah, it says that Alan Glick went to college with Joe Balistrieri, Frank's son. And there's a really easy way to show that that's not accurate. And that's that Joe Balistrieri went to Notre Dame, which is a Catholic university. Right. And Alan Glick was Jewish, so he was not at Notre Dame. So that I don't know where he got that information, but that is not accurate. Glick was a real estate developer in the San Diego area. Later on, he figured out that there was a way to make money developing land in Las Vegas. You could get a loan to improve the land, and then you would sell the land and make your money back just without even ever doing anything with the land. Just improving it, you could sell it, and you could make a big profit because the city was booming at that time. But at some point along the way, he wanted to move from doing that to actually owning the casinos because apparently he thought there was even more money to be made at the casinos. But he needed $63 million, which at that point in time was an obscene amount of money for him. I mean, I don't think that he had a million or five million to his name. So $63 million is quite a lot. And the exact details I'm a little fuzzy on, but somewhere along the way, he meets an attorney named Morris Shanker. And Morris Schenker sort of introduces him a couple steps along the way until eventually he introduces him to Frank Balistrieri. And he basically says, Frank's going to find you a way in. 
And again, because Frank Balstrieri knows Frank Ranney, who's on the pension fund, the details, like I said, are a little fuzzy because it depends who's saying what. A lot of this is coming from Glick testifying after the fact. Yeah. And I have some real doubts about Glick's honesty. But basically, the story at that point goes that the Teamsters Fund gave him the loan. And Glick, later on in his testimony, always maintained that he had no idea who these guys were or why they gave him such a good loan. And I don't personally buy that. I can't believe for a second that at some point he didn't find this suspicious that they were willing to give him millions of dollars with really nothing to back it up. But but that's what he claims. He claims he never knew that it was a mob thing until much too late. Really? And then there was that deal about, and they found the piece of paper that he agreed to sell Ballesteri's son's the corporation for like $50,000, some obscenely a low amount of money and then, yes. and signed the paper even they'd help him get this loan. So, I mean, that was. Yeah. And I've seen the actual paper. It does exist. They had an option agreement and I don't even know if I'm supposed to say this. So I apologize <laughs> if I am not supposed to say this, but even as recently as five years ago, even though Argent no longer exists, they were still talking about possibly trying to push the option through <laughs> to try to, to get, you know, some sort of money out of that. Get, get so, money out of Alan Glick because he's ended up selling out, making a lot of money and, and retired or not retired probably, but he just died recently, actually mm-hmm. going back to San Diego and laying low and testified against him and ended up dying a natural death. So go figure that one. But I can yeah. see where they might want to take him into court trying to enforce that agreement and then go get some proceeds from what he got when he sold Argent Corporation. Right. Yeah. And as you said, Glick just recently died in the last few months. And I mean no disrespect to him or his family. But again, as a researcher, I am kind of excited about this because for those people who don't know, the FBI doesn't release, generally speaking, doesn't release files on living people. Yeah. So... I'm really hoping that there's some new angle that we never saw before that will come out because of this. Because as I sort of said a few minutes ago, I never really believed Glick's version of events. I think there's more going on there. And he more or less was just saying what the government wanted him to say to get the convictions. I don't know how you feel about that, but that's... Yeah, well, I, I don't know. think he's as naive as he made himself out to be. <laughs> no, we're all going to cast ourselves in a good light when we tell our story. There's no doubt about it. And now the government will not challenge that too much if it supports their position and he's willing to come and testify. So I can understand that. I know some of the people involved personally and, and they're not corrupt and that they would suborn perjury. But he was going to definitely cast himself in the best light he could on that deal. Right. Yeah. I I I didn't know it. It probably was really hard to prove. It may be impossible to prove that he had some actual agreement that, yeah, now I'm going to let Lefty Rosenthal skim money and send it back to you guys in exchange for your help in getting this loan. Probably never said those words out loud. Lefty was already working out there in the Stardust when he took it over. And, you know, they brought now Glick's story is they brought him back to Kansas City and Nick Savella threatened to kill him and said, you know, you've got a man working for you out there who will pay us this money. So you just need to let him do what he needs to do. Glick, there's no doubt, turned a blind eye to that. There's a lot of right. stories out about how. Yeah. And I, and I don't mean to suggest there was perjury involved, yeah. but just I think they didn't want to investigate him too much because when you got a guy who can help you bring down three (laughs) 
mob families, you're going to cut them some slack. Yeah. Yes, you are. I mean, they, and he did it. It was amazing. He had never really suffered any consequences from it. So, no, so, so much which is the invincibility of the mafia. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, everybody is confused, a little bit confused and amazed by that story that he didn't suffer any consequences. But also, his testimony and that case came at kind of a pivotal time for the mafia in the entire United States because in all the several different cities, large cities, they were using Rico and wiretaps mm-hmm. and informants like him, storytellers like him. And the government was really putting the pressure on all the crime families in the United States. And they knew that to do anything while cases were in progress was going to bring down even more heat. They had a heat already. And then by the end of it, all the heads of the families went down, you know, by 85, 86. After the commission trials, they were just about all gone. It it changed so rapidly. And certainly in the Midwest by then, all those leaders of those crime families were gone. And and so, you know, I, I could see where it could would happen. But so it's interesting. It, it is really interesting. He's I know I got another phone call where Glick calls to talk to Balistrieri after the search warrants were served. And he had been talking to these sons. They were comparing notes about how much money they got. They were worried about this packet of money. And they knew where that packet of money might have came from. And, and they had this conversation. And you talk about lightly fencing with each other about, are you okay? Am I okay? Are you okay? Am I okay? And then hung up and never talked again. But he (laughs) had a special connection with Balisteri that, you know, he didn't, Glick didn't call anybody else during that time. And they had wires on everybody and surveillance and everything. And he didn't call anybody else, but he had to call Balisteri just to see how he was, shall we say. Right. Yeah. I mean, there was that connection, but then even the two sons, the Balistrieri sons, not only do they have the option on Argent Corporation, but they were legal representatives oh, yeah, of Argent. I know the one son specialized as in basically taxes. He was a financial attorney. Yeah. He knew a lot about, not necessarily the scam. I mean, I don't want to say that he did or didn't, but it, he knew a lot about the day-to-day numbers of what was going on. Oh, really? On. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yes, they were pretty well connected. I like said I don't think the Milwaukee end has really been explored to its fullest yeah, yet. I, I know the brothers, they did their law firm was getting like I want to say a twenty-five thousand dollar a month or a fifty thousand dollar a month retainer. He was paying them pretty good money for representation. And they did charge them both for being part of the uh whole conspiracy, and they got found not guilty and convicted Frank, is my understanding. Am I remembering that right? You're going to put me on the spot there. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, they, right. No, the, both of the brothers did end up going to prison. They got sentenced to eight years, but they ended up getting out in about three. Oh, really? I thought but I'm not sure if it was not sure if it was for that because at the same time they were also on trial for extortion locally in Milwaukee. Oh. So they might the prison time might have just been for the extortion. Okay, I'd have to look it up. So folks, uh, if you want to, get but they did. They were all on trial. They did all go to prison. It's just right. I'm not sure. Maybe they were spared the Vegas end of things. I'm not 100% on that. Yeah, it might have copped a plea or something. I'm pretty sure I read that they did not. Only Frank went down for the actual skimming. I, I didn't remember anything about and that. The and that could, be, that could be. I should know that answer, but uh, the <laughs> well, details of what charges too. stuck and which didn't, I don't yeah. recall. Yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, kind of what happened to the Milwaukee family then after the skim trials and after Frank went down, it seemed like he died not that long. Did he do some time and come back out? 
he did some time and he came back out. But yeah, I think you got that about right. Everybody, as you said, both in the Midwest, New York, all these families are getting taken down in the mid 80s. By the time Frank gets out, his health is in decline and he dies in 93. So he's not back out for very long. Yeah. And as near as I can tell, he really wasn't very active for the little bit he was back out. There's some debate on how much of a family there still was at that point. I tend to lean towards there really wasn't one. So it seems like that was kind of the end for them. In modern times, I I know there's some pretty much all over the United States, there's still some illegal poker machines like that activity. I know there are some up in in Wisconsin. Law enforcement doesn't really take a look at it anymore on any level that I know of. I think it's kind of like marijuana. Why should you spend a lot of resources to investigate some vice activity that in four or five years is going to be illegal or the government's going to run it? It's like the lottery. So I don't think anybody really pays any attention to it. Right. Yeah. The video poker machines are funny. Yeah. I don't know how other states work, but here there's sort of like this unspoken agreement that as long as you only have a handful of machines in your bar, we're not going to say anything about it. Yeah. If if they walked in and they saw 10 machines, you'd get in trouble. But yeah, if you got like three machines, yeah. that's fine. And I don't know why that's okay, but <laughs> but it's, I mean, everybody knows they're there and nobody does anything. So yeah. it's just sort of become accepted. Interesting. All right. So really basically the entity known as the Milwaukee Mafia probably is no more. Would that be a safe statement? even have any remnants of it. We have a slight remnant of the old Sabella family, but I don't know. Yeah, that's my opinion. And I always have to put the disclaimer on that. Since the bulk of my information does come from FBI files, Yeah. the problem I have with that is then I've got very good information in the 1960s, pretty good in the 70s, (laughs) and it gets spottier from there because of the fact that the living people don't have their records released. But I'm not sure who would have been around that is still around. I can't think of anybody who that would be. And the last mob, I mean, there's gang murders all the time, but the last actual mob murder wasn't since 1989. So Milwaukee's been pretty clean. Yeah, we're about the same in Kansas City. I know some of these guys still meet. They still get together. They still know each other. Some of the younger guys have some things going on. One of them had a crew that was going around robbing drug dealers and some things like that. But a couple of guys were doing arsons for hire, but then they got popped. And so I don't know. There's not much going on. Certainly there's no, when they lost the Teamsters Union, they lost it all. If you think yeah. about it, Gavin, the Teamsters Union provides a crime family with political power, provide them with a stream of cash money income coming in from those casinos. It, it was really the foundation that the mob family stood on in the 60s, 70s, until they were taken down in the 80s. So, uh, you know, that's just really not, you know, they have to go back to rackets, go back to burglary and fencing and <laughs> things right. like that. And there's not right. that much money in that. There's a lot of money in narcotics, but there's too much competition out of the Mexican mafia and the cartels to ever get into that. They don't dare go head to head with those cartels on, in the drug trade. Right. No, I, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in Milwaukee, narcotics was never a major, which is really unusual, but it was never a major part. Yeah. By the 1980s, they, they got into cocaine, but I mean, they were very late to the game. Yeah. All the other families, even though they said they didn't, dealing narcotics. We all know they did. Yeah. But in Milwaukee, I actually don't think they did. 
So they were very late to that game as well. So never really got a foothold. All right. Well, Gavin, this has been great. Folks, this has been Gavin Smith on the Milwaukee Mob. Here, let's uh, show you his books here. There's uh, Milwaukee Mafia, more of a book of photos. Actually, I was approached by somebody to do one of those by that company, to do one of those for Kansas City. And at the time, okay. I just didn't have the energy to do it. Nobody still hasn't done it. I don't know. Maybe I'll get the energy up to do that. For what it's worth, they sell pretty good. Yeah, well, <laughs> some people, no offense to them, but they're not readers. So yeah, they, yeah, right. they like the, that, like the visual. I know. I've done one that's, that's not a visual book. It's more a story of the skim and from a kind of insider standpoint. I'm a guy that worked on the streets during that, but I know, I know, and it doesn't sell very well, but that those picture books, a friend of mine did a one called Black Hand Strawman about Kansas City mafia activities. And it's a picture book, it's more like a coffee table book with a lot of images mm-hmm. in it. It sells a lot better than mine does. So <laughs> nobody's done it. Yeah, maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll decide to do it. So there, as long as you have the photos, that's the hard part. Yeah, so. I know, I know. Well, I, I can get the photos. I don't have them right now. I've got a few, but uh, I can get the photos. But boy, yeah. it's, it's still, even then, even if you got the photos, it's a lot of work to do a book sure, even sure. that. How much support do they provide you doing that? Like you get the photos and the text, they send you a template to put those into or? Yep. Yep. They give you the template. I mean, it's the real publishing company. They've got yeah, a marketing oh yeah. team you and everything else. All over the United States, you know, whether it's just about a city or about a, an area or a about crime or whatever it is. No, they were very good. And the the editor was excellent, asked a lot of great questions. So I have nothing but nice things to say about it. Kind of finished my last movie. I hope my last documentary I've ever done. Those are a lot of work too. That's been making. So who knows? All right, folks, this has been Gavin Smith. Gavin, I really appreciate you coming on here. I appreciate being asked. I mean, like I said, I've known about your podcast for years. So it's a real honor to be here. Well, I was told about you probably a couple, three years ago, you had this book. You had both those books. You were kind of the go-to guy. And I got distracted by New York and LA and Las Vegas and, and all the bigger spots. And I forgot about one of my brothers in a, a more smaller mob towns is Gavin Smith in the Milwaukee crime family. So I really appreciate talking to you and we'll get this information out to people. They all need to know about the Milwaukee mafia because it was an integral part. You know, even uh, New York mafia knows about you guys because if you remember Joe Pistone acting as Donnie Brasco and Lefty mm-hmm. Ruggiero came back, tried to influence a Milwaukee mafia guy to help a local Milwaukee FBI agent who was working undercover to do they, what were they gonna do? They were gonna they were doing some kind of video poker machines or something, if I remember right. Well, not video poker, but they were yeah, they were in the vending vending area vending, vending area so do we uh, want to get into that whole story <laughs> <laughs> well we could how much time we done here you know that story pretty well i i know just sure. enough to be dangerous okay let's tell that story we're gonna make this just a little bit extra long segment here tell us that story okay so i'll keep it simple there's a an fbi agent in milwaukee his name was gail cobb and he opens up a company called best vending And he's going around trying to get vending machines in local restaurants and bars. I don't think he honestly cares if he succeeds or not. I think he just is doing it to try to get the attention of Frank Balestrieri, which he succeeds at. And sort of what happens is they end up having to sit down. They go to the restaurant. They have a conversation. And by the end of the conversation, similar to the option on 
Las Vegas, there's an option now to buy into this vending machine company this guy has set up, even though it really there's nothing in this company. Like he's yeah. not very successful. But this apparently this is just something they do is these options. So they've now got part of this. But yeah, the guy wasn't making very much headway. So he calls or through the FBI, but somehow they get a hold of Joe Pistone, Johnny Brasco. And Donnie talks to his mob guy, Lefty Ruggiero. And and Lefty is like, oh, yeah, I, I can get you guys in there. And it becomes this very convoluted thing where Lefty has to talk to his man in New York. His man in New York knows a guy in New Jersey. The guy in New Jersey knows a guy in Rockford, Illinois. And the guy in Rockford, Illinois, knows Frank Balstrui. So Lefty has no idea who any of these Milwaukee guys are. But apparently through the grapevine, they were able to trace it back. And the guys in Rockford were like, yeah, 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 those New York guys are good. So they flew out and they were able to kind of set things up. So, yeah, I put the cart before the horse there. Like before they, they sit down and they had this option, they had to have the New York guys fly in and kind of vouch for them. But yeah, that's the other thing they ended up, like I said earlier, the Suns ended up getting in trouble for extortion. This is the extortion they ended up getting yeah. in trouble for because the government says that they sort of forced this option upon him and were sort of threatening and that matter to take over this business. They were trying to prove that they were trying to take over all the vending in the Milwaukee area. And they were having limited success on that because every time they went to somebody and asked them, they said, well, yeah, we have Frank's machines, but it's never been a problem. So they couldn't get people in the bars and restaurants to actually say that they were forced to carry that line of machines. Mm-hmm. And you could take that either way. Either they didn't want to say, or maybe he just was a really good operator. But that's the short version of it. Is the FBI tried to get in that way as well. And, and it did work since... Yeah. They ended up getting convicted on it. Uh, interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't remember the story exactly, but that's a really, I love that, how they made their connections to get vouched for. And Ruggiero acts like he can know somebody, but he really doesn't because he always, right. was, if I remember right, he always wanted to act like he could do anything. He was Mr. Mafia. So he's got to go. To yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, three different he's famous guys. now. <laughs> he's famous now because of the Donnie Brasco yeah. story, but he's really a nobody. He's a nobody. Yeah. He really was. You know, I did a story. I had a guy on that was in the penitentiary with him and, and I got some statements from uh, Joe Pistone about what a pain in the ass he was and how he was always whining and crying and mooching stuff. And, and this guy said he was in the penitentiary with him. He said he's the same way in the penitentiary. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, great. Great. One last story, folks. Make give you a little bonus here for this episode. Don't forget to hit me up on Venmo at Gangland Wire and go to the website and go to the donate page. I've got a book out there, just like Gavin's got some books we talked about, Milwaukee Mafia Mobsters in the... Uh, all of a sudden, I can't remember the in the heartland. Like I said, not, cra- heartland, not crazy about the subtitle, but <laughs> I, I search said, Milwaukee Mafia and you'll find me. <laughs> Mine is Leaving Vegas: The True Story of How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Now that's a mouthful too. But I just mm-hmm. gave up, man. It just I don't know. You wear me down here. Just get some kind of a title and get it out there. Throw it, throw it up on yeah. Amazon for sale and get it to Kindle. So uh, yeah, it's been great talking to you. Gavin, and I look forward to talking to you again one of these days. All right. Always glad to be back if you have me, Gary. Thank you very much. Bye. Well, folks, that ends another Gangland Wire episode. Really appreciate 
you're tuning in and listening, however you listen to it, whether it's on the website or on one of the apps. I also want to express my thanks and sincere appreciation for the kind reviews that you've given me on the app or the Apple app or, or some of the other podcast apps. I used to check them when I first did this. I checked them a lot, but I don't check them anymore so much. Once in a while, I look at them. Sometimes I get my feelings hurt, especially on YouTube, but that's okay. If you put yourself out there, you better not have a thin skin. I've learned that. My most recent documentary, I really want to express extra appreciation to the people who stepped up and helped me finance that movie and enabled to increase the production values, hired a professional to do the reenactment scenes and some of the other things and got some better music I had to pay for. And we have it out now. Now, the last time I did one of these endings for the podcast, I had a different title. I changed the title just at the last minute. It's now about theft burglary, murder, and cover-up. So I encourage you to come on the website. I can't get it on Amazon like I have Brothers Against Brothers and Gangland Wire because they changed their rules. And if I can't get a theatrical release like a major film studio or get it in a major film festival, which is kind of like, I don't know what it's like, it's dang near impossible unless you're politically connected to some of the people that run these film festivals. And a guy like me doesn't really have a chance. It's been my experience. I fought that a few years back and I gave up. It's too much effort for too little payoff. But if you want to stream it, it's on my website for $1.99. I figured out a way to do that. And you pay me $1.99 and I will send you a link to stream it. As well as my other two movies, you want to stream them for $1.99. Of course, I have the DVDs for sale. Or if you make a donation, why uh, I'll give you the DVD and give you a streaming link too, or a book or Kindle book, whatever you want. You guys kind of know the drill by now. If you've been listening to it, if not just go to my donate page. One last thing, I've kind of dogged off on this PTSD thing. I used to always want to try to promote that. So if you've been listening to podcasts, you know what to do. But if you have any problems with PTSD and you know, and you're a veteran, then you know, go to the VA. If not, go to the VA website or just Google VA hospital PTSD and they've got a hotline and they've got a lot of resources. And even if you're not a veteran or if you just know a veteran, you can go there and find the resources. If you're not a veteran, you can go there and find resources. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.